Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. We'll be starting a new season of Jury Duty on February 28th with our examination of the Kenosha, Wisconsin murder trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. You can find a trailer for that new season in our feed. However, before we start Jury Duty Season 4, we are revisiting the trial of Robert Durst, which we covered in Seasons 1 and 2 of this podcast. Jury Duty has secured exclusive interviews with two of the jurors, Carmen Kleteka and John Okanishi, who were part of the Los Angeles panel that convicted Robert Durst of the murder of his good friend, Susan Berman. In our last episode, we heard their memories of the testimonies of witnesses who offered evidence that Robert Durst was involved in Kathy's death and that Susan Berman helped him cover it up. In this episode, we hear from Carmen and John about their memories of the testimonies of witnesses who were especially close to Susan Berman. We will also hear their reflections on the verdict of a jury in Galveston, Texas, a jury that found Robert Durst not guilty of the murder of Morris Black. At the end of the episode, we will relive some of the key moments that they mention by playing excerpts of the trial audio that they reference. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We begin today's excerpts from my conversation with juror number 12 and jury four person Carmen Kleteka by asking her about her memory of the testimony of Mella Kaufman. Tell me your response to Mella Kaufman's testimony. So Mella, she was very compelling as well. You know, here's a person who she was very young at the time. So at the time that Susan came into her life and assumed the role of a mother, which is pretty significant. Even though she was very young, I think that she became Susan's confidant. And I think Susan felt comfortable telling her some things that she did. And and Susan probably thought that being very young, Mela would, you know, forget all about it. But as we saw, she was quite impressed by what she heard and she remembered it and she was able to testify. You know, she I remember this uh, story she told about and she said they were like driving somewhere and she told her in just in passing that she had made a phone call to create an alibi or something like that. I was impressed that Mela was able to remember all those details this much later. And I think Mela was also uh, very uh, perceptive. And I think she was able to tell that her mother was saying something pretty important. And she paid attention. Even though the information she was given was very, very limited. And even though Susan was known for telling a lot of big stories, I think Mela was perceptive enough to detect that this wasn't one of the stories. And I think that when she she was on the stand and, and she described this, I think she she believed that one hundred percent. 
I also found that she humanized Susan more than any other witness. And I, I mean that in the sense that we got a sense of the complexity of Susan, but we also got a sense of why Susan was a deeply lovable person. I agree. The way Mele talked about her, it was very, very loving. You know, and, and we also saw that Susan, you know, she wasn't perfect, but she had a lot of other uh, very nice qualities, including being loving and uh, generous. Mela wasn't her daughter, but she treated her as if she was. And um, I think it takes a really great person to do that. Tell me about the testimony of Paul Kaufman. Oh, goodness. That guy. Let's see. There's so much. I'm trying to package this up so that, you know, I include everything. So he, I mean, he just was clearly not a very nice guy. Even Mela said so. I thought Mela gave an excellent description of her father. And this goes back to how like perceptive she was even as in her, at her young age. She, she made a lot of very interesting observations. And one of the things that she said was she remembers her father always bringing home like tall, beautiful, blonde women. And then all of a sudden, one day he shows up with Susan, who does not fit that description. And she immediately knew something was up. And having that in mind, put that together with what he said in in at the, on the witness stand, he said that he he went to live with her and she uh, funded this this play that he had, and she uh, you know had a a lot of money. He moved into her home, and then uh, she she funded his play, and then uh, then she was broke, and then you know after she she was used up all her money on on that, then he conveniently left. So I mean it was. It was clear that he was just probably using her. So that, I felt kind of sad for Susan because of that. But I felt sad for Susan. She made some bad decisions. And oh, she she paid the ultimate price for that eventually. But she got to be a, a mother. So it wasn't all bad with Paul Kaufman. I was even more disappointed in Paul Kaufman when Mela told us on the witness stand what he said when he found out that Susan had died. I thought that was incredibly disrespectful, especially given that he had a significant role in her going bankrupt. And can you remind the listeners what it was that he said on the stand? I think he said, ding dong, the witch is dead, when he found out that Susan had died. Then I think he said, oh, well, it was a joke. I think he said that, like, later. There were a few of Berman's friends that also took the stand. There was Ricky Ring. Do you remember her? Yeah, she was great. I really liked Ricky. She said something I really liked a lot. She said Susan had told her about the phone call, and Ricky was the only person that had what I would think is an appropriate reaction and the reaction of a good friend, which is, I think she told her, like, what were you thinking? And I think she said, I wanted to kill her for that. And she scolded her. I think Susan really needed to hear that. And I think she was lucky to have a, a friend to provide a, a good scolding for her. because I think she needed it. 
Do you remember the testimony of Richard Markey? I think his testimony was important because one thing that sticks in, in my mind about that is he said that when he went to pick her up, he had to like call her. And it was like this whole process that she had when people came over, like they had to make a phone call and they would knock and then she would let them in after hearing their voice. And she had to have like all these different forms of confirmation. And then only after that, she would let them in. And I remember him describing how he went through all that when he picked her up, which was important because it showed that she was, I mean, that way till the end. And I mean, that's how multiple people described her method was. It shows that it was still the case up until her last day. And then also it showed that she knew the person who had entered the home because there were no signs of forced entry. So I think if it was a stranger, there's no way she would have let them in. Do you remember anything significant about Al Clethen's testimony? Well, first of all, he said that he was he was struggling financially and he had been, I think he said he was roughing it and he was really looking forward to having a good time on someone else's dime. And he was referring to Susan having told him that her uh, rich friend, Bobby Durst, was coming into town and he was going to show them a good time. So that did give me some pause because it showed me that she was expecting Bobby to come in sometime soon. However, it wasn't on her planner. And we saw that she put everything on that planner, even like minor details that some people wouldn't even bother putting on a planner, but she did. I mean, it was established that her good friend Bobby Durst was a significant person in her life, and that would have definitely have been on the planner. And I think what happened is that he told her that that he was coming into town, they were going to have a good time, and he didn't give her a specific date. So that's why it wasn't on the calendar. So I think it's true that he told her that, you know, I, I wondered about that. I wondered if, you know, maybe they did have these plans, just like, you know, he said they did. But what I think happened is that he had told her that he was coming and he had an underdeveloped plan. He wasn't quite sure of how he was going to do this. And then I think at some point he changed his mind and decided to uh, do this uh, a different way. And that's when he just popped in one day and shot her in the back of the head. The Galveston part of the prosecution's case and the images of Morris Black's dismembered corpse and all of the evidence that was presented about what happened in Galveston and Durst's testimony in Galveston. Did you find yourself wondering what was the jury in Texas thinking? Yeah. I asked myself that question all the time. I thought that we're all brain dead. That was my conclusion. And I know I'm supposed to be polite and politically correct, but some things you just got to say them like they are. And this is one of them. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
We now return to my interview with juror number two, John Okanishi, and hear his memories of these same witnesses. Can you tell me a bit about your response to both Paul Kaufman's testimony and then Mella Kaufman's testimony in the context of Paul Kaufman's? I found Mella Kaufman to be, of all the witnesses we heard, probably the most, well, I, I would say her and Lorraine Newman, but because Mella had a very close relationship with, you know, with, with Susan Berman. I found her, you know, the way she described, you know, their uh, relationship and her insight into uh, Susan Berman as the most credible. Now, you know, obviously there was some, you know, father-daughter friction or, you know, animosity, you know, between her and her father. When uh, her, her father, you know, testified, you know, I found him you know, quite believable as well. But I think my one takeaway from, uh, you know, Melikoppen, where she also, as I recall, you know, testified that, you know, Susan, uh, you know, was an alibi for Robert Durst as very believable and consistent with the other uh, witnesses. But my one takeaway, the strongest takeaway from Melikoppen's testimony was, I truly believed that Susan Berman would have been loyal to Robert Durst to the very end. So as much as you know, it was portrayed that she was explicitly blackmailing Robert Durst, and that might have been um, one of the key reasons why she was murdered, I-, I felt that her feeling was if the positions were reversed and she was the one with all the money and Robert Durst needed money, that she would gladly help her closest friend and financially support him. You know, but in this case, the tables are turned. You know, why isn't he doing the same for her? I mean, he he did up to a certain extent, and I'm sure you know she was, you know, act, asking for additional assistance. But you know, based upon Mella Kaufman's testimony, I don't think Susan Berman ever ever explicitly blackmailed Robert Durst. She was just expecting him to act as the same type of friend that she would be to him if she had all the money. I want to talk about all the Galveston evidence. And do you think there was unanimity among the jurors that Robert Durst killed Morris Black premeditatedly? Yes. All of the all of the jurors, you know, did feel that Robert Durst, yeah, killed Morris Black first degree murder. You know, we didn't really the thing is though, we really didn't focus on that as much as some of the other pieces of the evidence. I mean, the a Texas jury found Robert Durst as being not guilty in that. The only impressions that that made on us is, here's a guy who's capable of severing up, cutting up a body, and disposing of it. So what does that say to his character or his uh, predilection to you know, such a gory act? So that was, you know, one key takeaway. For me personally, the one thing that the whole discussion or the, you know, prosecution bringing bringing that up was, we saw in our trial, you know, um, testimony by Robert Durst that I thought clearly showed he perjured himself during the Texas trial. And the main the main takeaway was there was there was contrasting testimony, uh, and that Durst during the uh, the Texas trial, I, I forget which incident was which, but in one 
recollection of uh, what happened with Morris Black. Robert Durst said that Morris Black came towards him with the gun by his side, meaning Morris Black was holding the, the gun down as he approached Robert Durst. And in a, another testimony, Robert Durst says, yeah, I won't forget this. He approached me, pointing the gun straight at me. I mean, two description of the events that were, that were inconsistent. And, you know, I got to think is you're going to remember that if, if someone is, is, is coming towards you and you're fearful of your life, you're going you're gonna to remember that fact. Yet here are two different versions of it. And, uh, you know, when Mr. Lewin, you know, brought this up and he goes, you know, which one of these is true? Robert Durst really didn't say anything. He just sort of like, you know, just looked at him. And I found it a lot of times when um, Durst was found in these situations where, you know, it would be recorded where one time he would say one thing and then, oh, but he said this again. He just really didn't have any, any you know, response as to why the two uh, descriptions were, uh, were inconsistent. So again, with regards to Morris Black, it showed yet another sign that Robert Durst lies under oath. We are now going to relive some of the impactful moments mentioned by Carmen and John in their reflections. We begin with Mella Kaufman and her testimony about the impact of Susan Berman's murder on her. Ms. Kaufman, who refers to Susan Berman as her mother, is questioned by Deputy DA Habib Balian. Emotionally, everything having to do with my mother's murder in this case um, is so difficult that approaching it at all is a um, something I, I'd rather avoid. <laughs> I had had a lot of inconsistency and um, it was hard for me to trust family. When, when you first met her, did you trust her? No. Did your relationship with her develop over time? Yes. How close did you guys become? Uh, mother and daughter plus, I would say. Who was your uh, who are your biological parents? Uh, Judy Hamilton and Paul Kaufman. Are they together today? No. They separated when I was two and a half. Okay. What type of interactions did you have growing up with your biological mother? I would see her on weekends between the ages, I believe, of maybe six and 13. Okay. Not every weekend. How about um, Paul Kaufman? Growing up, how close were you to him? Uh, not very. How active of a parent was Paul Kaufman in your life? Not active at all. Neglectful. When you came home and you met Susan Berman, had yeah. she already formed some form of a relationship with your father? Uh, it was in the early stages. I may have even been there the first night she was introduced for um, Shabbat or something. Eventually, she came for dinner. Yeah. My fault. Eventually, did she uh, form a relationship with your father? Yes. What type of relationship? First, it was a friendship, and then it became romantic and quick to an engagement. Okay. Describe the kinds of things Susan would do with you growing up. Well, we, there was so much. It's um, we did homework together. We did. We we sat at the kitchen table and and talked endlessly. We went out to dinner together. We went to yoga. She would read all sorts of books and hand them on to me. We'd watch series and movies together. We'd go to the you know, library to work on a school project. She would involve me in her work projects. 
I think she wanted to see if it would spark interest or just expose me. We ran errands together. I went with her on errands from 11 until I went off to college. We were inseparable and it was a crazy involvement to the point where, um, you know, I, I actually felt extremely controlled. What were some of the best personality traits that Susan Berman had? She had an unbelievable awareness for the value of um, human connection or relationships. Um, she had a, a depth of love for those who were um, friends and family that was, and just an appreciation of how precious those relationships were uh, that was, um, I don't know, remarkable, uh, very, um, I think anyone would be sort of stunned. It would not be some, your average person at all. She also was very bright and very entertaining and, um, incredibly supportive. What do you mean by entertaining? Uh, she was a lot of fun and she had a way of drawing you out of yourself and making it a really good time. And she was a lot of fun to talk to. Lots of laughing. How smart was she? I'd say she's pretty much brilliant. I mean, that's, she was very, very bright. Let's um, now talk about some of Susan's, what you perceived as negative qualities. Okay. What were some of her negative qualities? She was incredibly manipulative, uh, fearful, extremely fearful, extremely controlling. She would soar high when she was going after something and she could, she could collapse. Have you previously described Susan as she could be vindictive if someone did something that she didn't like? Oh, yes. She, that was actually what I considered her worst quality. Okay. She was incredibly vindictive. It was disturbing to me. From your perspective, based on what you saw about Susan, how committed was she to you? Yeah, 100%. I felt like her number one priority. How much did, from your perspective, based on what you saw and experienced, how much did she love you? I felt extremely loved. Did you get those feelings from your father? No. Is it a fair statement that you were closer to Susan than either your biological mother or your father? Absolutely. She was my only parent. When Susan came back from New York and they had had a fight, I remember we were sitting in the park and the dogs were running around and before she could even really get it out, I said, well, obviously I'm staying with you, which, you know, she was pretty thrilled about and tearful. And What was her demeanor when you told her, you know what, I want to stay with you? She was touched and relieved. There was a, a deep gratitude in our relationship as, as mother and daughter having both kind of been orphans and found each other. Um, so our relationship, her being able to be a mother, me being able to be a daughter was really precious. And probably like with a biological mom, she wouldn't have assumed that I would go elsewhere and neither would I, mm -hmm. except for I can see where maybe she had a little trepidation or fear since she didn't have legal custody. Sure. How old were you? approximately when this conversation took place 12 or 13 in there Thir probably 13 14 actually what was the context under uh, which this discussion came up between you and susan to the best of your memory we went to the ucla library to research a uh, 
feminist interpretation of the Bible for my English class. And um, when we were leaving, I believe, um, we were on sunset, um, and she was, you know, it was just another interesting story she was telling me, and she was telling me about um, her friend and how his wife had disappeared and how she had been an alibi or made a phone call for him so that it wasn't suspicious. And um, she left it kind of like a cliffhanger. I, you know, I was, she left me in suspense, like, did he do it? And she kind of smirked and said, I don't know, you know, what do you think kind of thing. And at the time when she was saying this to you, did she use um, names of who was involved or she just referred to this as a friend? Names. Okay. Who was she talking about? Uh, Bobby Durst and his um, wife, Kathleen. Okay. Well, did she use the word Kathleen or did she just say his wife? Uh, I I can't really remember at this point. At the end of that conversation, did you know whether based on what Susan told you, Bobby Durst was involved with his missing wife, his disappearance of his wife? It was heavily implied. I was not certain. To strike, Your Honor. Overall. And when you say it was heavily implied, was this be go along with the way Susan would tell this story to you and leaving it suspenseful? Yes. How certain are you that Susan Berman told you that she helped her friend Bobby? with this situation by providing some sort of an alibi? Completely. Is there any doubt in your mind? No. Next, we hear testimony from Mella's father and Susan Berman's former husband, Paul Kaufman. Mr. Kaufman is also questioned by Deputy DA Habib Balian. I tried to say as little as possible. I was hoping that I could say as little as possible and therefore not have to testify. When Detectives and Mr. Lewin came to your house. You knew they were there to ask you questions to try to figure out what happened to Susan Berman. Is that right? That is correct. You knew that at least Mr. Durst was suspected of killing Susan Berman. Is that correct? What was your answer, sir? Yes, I did. You knew that Mr. Durst had been suspected of being involved with his missing wife's disappearance. That's correct. And you knew that they were there to try to get to the truth of the matter. That's correct. You didn't provide this information. I did provide the truth once... uh, Well, you provided the truth once they confronted you with previous statements you'd made to detectives, did you not? Yes, I started by saying I don't remember anything, and he said, oh really, how about this? I said, well, basically you found me out, and then I you know, spilled the beans. Did Susan tell you that Mr. Durst had told her that he killed his wife? I don't think she said that. I think she simply said, you know, he killed his wife, you know. This is from the testimony of Susan Berman's friend, Ricky Ring. Ms. Ring is questioned by Deputy DA John Lewin. Did you ever discuss with Susan Anything about Kathy's disappearance? Yes. What did Susan say to you? She said 
that she was shocked, surprised, amazed that the New York Police Department bought the story that a fourth-year medical student, which Kathy was, was unlawful a drug dealer and do no thorough investigation. Told me she was also shocked. Bobby threw out all of Kathy's possessions shortly after she disappeared. And she told me that she was very surprised when she went to the Florida Keys that Bobby a few weeks after Kathy had disappeared, Bobby never mentioned Kathy. What was your response to Susan Berman who told you this? I told her that I was a lawyer, and while I couldn't specifically remember what the most professional responsibility were at this very moment, I never wanted to hear another word about this. And what prompted you to respond in the way that you just indicated by telling me that. In other words, why'd you say that? I had a very strong feeling that the next thing she was about to tell me, and it seemed strongly implied, was not, was that Bobby had a hand in Kathy's disappearance. Next, we have excerpts from the testimony of Susan Berman's friend, Richard Markey. Markey was the last person besides Berman's killer to see her alive. What was the date that you were last with her? December 22nd. What year? 2000. 2000. Where did you go to dinner in the morning? Uh, I forget the name of the restaurant, but it was on the Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica. Okay. Um, does the Broadway Deli sound like Yeah, that's, that's the restaurant. Okay. And how did you get there? Susan picked me up, and uh, we drove there in her car. Uh, do you remember what kind of car it was? In the Suzu Trooper, I think. Okay. And when she picked you up, where did she pick you up from? My apartment. Okay. And where did you guys go first? To the restaurant on the Third Street Promenade. <clears throat> okay. Do you recall approximately what time it would have been that you, you had then? No, but the uh, normal... What did you guys discuss during dinner? Our lives and uh, careers. Okay. You talk, You were talking earlier about that there was some sort of a negotiation she was having with the TV network. Yes. Tell us about that. Did this discussion occur over dinner? Yes. Okay. She was in negotiations. Uh, and she told me whatever the details of the negotiation were and asked my opinion on uh, contract issues. Okay. Were there other things you might have discussed as well? Yes. Discussed the, the usual things that friends talk about, friends, family, whatever was current in our life right at that time. Um, Would you discuss Susan's? Stepchildren, Sarah and Mello? Yes. Do you recall if you discussed Susan's landlady, Eve Askin, and Ed did? Yes. What did you guys discuss about? Susan had been essentially at war with her 
she wanted to evict Susan. Susan had to pay the rent in a few months. Um, and uh, her landlord had taken steps. I don't remember specifics, but uh, it, it was a confrontational situation between the two of them. And based on your discussions at dinner with Susan that night, as of at least that night, was this confrontation still ongoing or had it been resolved? I think it had been resolved. How so? I think the uh, money that Mr. Durst gave her allowed her to uh, settle whatever claims the landlady had made on. And was she going to be able to stay in her home? I believe so. And this is all based on what she had told you? Yes. After dinner, um, is that when you guys went to the movie? Yes. How did you get there? We walked 50 feet. Okay. Do you remember what movie you guys? Uh, yes. Best in show. Um, it, it appears you enjoyed the movie. Yes. Do you remember approximately what time the movie got out? I, I don't, but mid-evening, nine or 10 o'clock. Okay. Do you recall where you guys went after the movie? I think that was the end of the night. She dropped me back to my apartment. And finally, we have testimony from Susan Berman's writing collaborator, Al Cleffin. On the uh, occasions that you visited Susan Berman on her home in Benedict Canyon, what was it? Uh, what was it like when you arriving at her home and, and getting inside? No, it, was, it, was, it wasn't easy. I mean, you. It, it, she was very protective, secretive, or it was, I, I don't know the word. But anyway, you had to not. She would not answer her door, she, even to Doug's barking. She would never. She was always. She, she had to know when you were coming over. The dog would bark, everything, and she would. She would, um, you know, you could hear them, but sometimes you'd not be there and she would not, you know, but then she... When you would knock on the door, would she, on occasions you were there, ever open the door without saying something to you through the door? Based on your knowledge of Susan Mervyn's habits and customs that she displayed to you, did she seem like the type of person who would open her front door to an unannounced stranger in the evening? Never, no, she wouldn't. That concludes this bonus episode of Jury Duty. Join us on our next episode as we hear from Carmen and John about their memories of the witness testimonies that they consider particularly damaging to the defense case. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. 
It was co-produced and edited by Chris Terracom. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.